As Grant said, my name is Clay. I'm delighted to be here with all of you this morning. It's, it's kind of surreal to be here. We live at sea level, and so to be up this high in the air is kind of a different experience. And to walk around, if there was this much water in the air in Norfolk, we would be wondering which roads we couldn't drive down because they'd have been flooded. And so we are just really thankful and excited to be here with y'all this morning. And as I was praying and thinking about what to speak on, um, Grant told me kind of the mission statement of what you guys have been digging into here through chapel and the reality that the whole hope is just to encounter Christ, that we can just come and enter space in which we encounter him. And while that's a beautiful thing, and I think you should ask him about it because it's a really beautiful vision, it's really hard as a speaker to figure out what to talk about when the guardrails for you are all of human emotion and experience and all of the Bible. Uh, and so what, what we're going to talk about this morning, the topic we're going to dive into, is what the Lord's been teaching me most keenly this past season of my life. Um, the past eight months in particular, and what we're going to be looking into is pain and brokenness and how Jesus meets us there. The big question we're going to be driving towards, we're going to be trying to ask ourselves is, where do you run in pain? Where do you run when life goes sideways? When you're in deep pain, what do you believe? And does Jesus have any place in that for you? This morning we'll be looking at a scene from the life of Elijah as our kind of guiding post to walk through this topic. So if you, if you would please grab a Bible and we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 19 verses 1 through 8. And as, as you're turning there, a uh, little background and context for where we're jumping into the history of the people of Israel. We're jumping in when the people of Israel divide into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And in particular, what's, what's going on within the people right now is just rampant idolatry. Just an absolute, just running to false gods, in particular the god of Baal. Um, and so from time to time, the Lord would raise up prophets such as Elijah to come and call the people back to faithfulness, to come and call the people back to himself, to holiness and purity. So we're going to look at one of these instances and how Elijah had been called in a lot of ways towards uh, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And it all come to this huge showdown at Mount Carmel right before our passage we're going to look at in which the Lord shows up in truly biblical fashion and shows his power and holiness for all to see, striking down many of the false prophets and just showing his name as great. And so we're going to pick up the story right after what most would consider would be the most victorious point in Elijah's life, the time when he experienced God in an extravagant way. So let's look at the word together, looking now at 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but I have, I have had 
years and years of really youth soccer to help drive this reality into that after a season of victory, like we go to CeCe's Pizza and eat as much as we can and we celebrate. And this is going to be like happy times with all of our friends. Yeah, here we go, right? Uh, <laughs> CeCe's Pizza love, good to know. Um, but what we see here is actually the antithesis of that. It's the complete opposite of that. And what I want us to, to do this morning is to dig into how Elijah can be a lens into this topic of pain, can be a lens to feel the depth of the pain, to see where he runs and how God meets him in that pain. And a bit of a disclaimer as we jump into this, we need to hold dual realities when we're talking about pain. On one hand, the truth is each one of us experiences pain in different ways every single day of our lives. There are different things that happen in the classroom and and just walking around campus in our rooms by ourselves, in which we feel this pain. And yet we also need to hold the reality there are very different levels of pain. Are there not? There are different tears entirely. Some of you walk around every day with just this tearing, robbing of your dignity through racism and systemic injustice. Others of you are walking around with wounds and scars of abuse and neglect. My hope this morning is that we don't try and just whitewash over and consider all pain the same, but that we can see that the Lord moves in a consistent way in our pain, and meets us there in it. What this morning I'm going to be arguing is is two main things. The first is that pain exposes us, showing the patterns of our life and what our hearts are revealing underneath it. And then we're going to look at how pain invites us into flourishing, inviting us to be broken before our Savior, inviting us to be broken within community, and inviting to be broken within this process of healing and growth. So what we're going to be looking at again is we're going to be looking at how pain exposes us and how pain invites us into flourishing. So for those of you keeping score at home, this is a five-point sermon hidden as a two-point sermon, none of which are the holy three-point sermon. And it's a topical sermon coming out of a single piece of scripture instead of multiple. So I think at this point, we've probably successfully offended the entire homiletics and Old Testament department. And so let's Let's dig in and see what the Lord has for us, uh, how, how the Lord can redeem even that. Uh, and so let's look and see how it is that pain exposes us. Starting with the disclaimer, the reality is we hate being exposed, do we not? We hate when we are revealed um, as, as something core or something we don't want to see, but we love it when others are. We're this walking contradiction. It's why so often shows wait and right there's a plot twist part, part of the way through or all the way through. We love learning this new facet about someone else. It's part of why so many people are obsessed with the news cycle, right? Waiting for the next person to be exposed. But when that light is shown upon us, we scatter like cockroaches to the dark places of our lives where we feel most comfortable. This came to roost in my heart in this very explicit way a couple months ago when uh, my older two sons, Everett and Hudson, who are about a year apart, uh, we're arguing, which isn't an uncommon song in our household. Um, but Everett was speaking to Hudson and started saying, like, I said, what are you thinking? Like, why would you do this? Like, how could you possibly believe this? You know, and Superdad over here heard that, and I was like, oh, we're going to move into this, right? And come up, and what do I do? Move. Everett, what are you thinking? Why are you talking to your brother like this? How could you possibly think this is okay? And I stopped, like, in mid-sentence on the third sentence. So much so that both the boys looked at me like, Dad, are you okay? Like, what's going on? Because it's me. Like, he's just reflecting what he has seen me do and has experienced from me. 
So often pain is that great kind of ripping off of the scales of our eyes to show what's truly beneath, to show what's really going on. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look now and see how it is that pain exposes the patterns of our life. I want to do this by asking you to imagine with me a couple scenarios and to imagine how you might respond. Imagine with me that you maybe got a paperback or a test and you bombed it. I mean, you really bombed it, and one of your friends did really well on it. What do you do in those moments? Do you move to this place of obsessive studying, just being like, all right, we're about to live up at that library, I'm about to take my pillow, and we're about to just stay there forever so that I can know this inside and out, and I don't have to feel that pain ever again? Or maybe do you swing to the other side and move to this place of this self-righteous judge, and you're just like, you know what the problem is? problem is those dang professors, man. If they just recognized the greatness and genius in their midst, then they'd know I deserve the 100 on that, right? You know, they, it's with them. And really, that guy only got a good grade because he's a brown noser. He's just a suck up. Like I, you know, and what we're doing there, friends, is Teflon coating our lives so that nothing can stick on us. Again, what we're trying to do is run from that pain instead of look at it. Or imagine with me a point in your life when you feel completely overwhelmed. Perhaps finals week. Where do you go then? How do you move into that? Do you move into a, a, a state of like escapism, right? Just rolling Netflix, like, yes, I am still watching. Thank you for asking. Uh, or, or perhaps you move in your escapism to, to other things, to maybe to drink or to pornography. Where do you go to escape? And what are you trying to escape in that pain? Or again, maybe you swing to the other side of that spectrum and you move into this rabid perfectionism. And you double down on, listen, I am going to do this with my capabilities, with what I bring to the table. I'm just going to suck it up and I'm going to do it. I've just got to pay a little more. I've just got to do a little more. What is the pain revealing about our actions there? Or perhaps the final one I want to look at is, is just this, the, the sharp knife of loneliness. Do you know the feeling of walking across campus and seeing other clusters of students in deep friendship and joy and only knowing silence and isolation? Where do you run then? Do you run to a place of just kind of passive acceptance? Listen, I know I'm just, I'm just an awkward, introverted six. And I, you know, just, um, that's who I am. And that's just who I'm going to be for forever. Um, or do you swing the other way and just clamor for trying to show people that you are lovely? Manipulating your persona on so- social media or any of the rest, trying to just scream to others, I am lovely, love me. Brothers and sisters, where do you run in pain? What is your life revealing? One of the things I have been really sitting in this these past months that I've realized is this, just this reality that Scripture provides this constant thread, that the Lord treats us as embodied souls. He treats us and says, your actions matter. But what your actions are actually doing is just the fruit of your heart. What your actions are are just the flare that shot up to show what's lurking underneath. I want to look now and see how it is that pain exposes our hearts. And I want to rewind back to each one of those three scenarios and ask two questions. In that pain, what are we believing about ourselves? And what are we believing about God? What is it showing about our hearts? So look, remember again back, when if you bombed that paper, what are you believing? So often where my heart would go was this place that my worth is rooted in my success here in how I stack up against my classmates. It's rooted in being able to say, look, I did it, I have achieved this, I am good at this. 
And don't miss this. Don't miss what we're actually saying with our lives there. Because here at Covenant College, I'm sure you, you are just kind of saturated with the Reformed theology that says, listen, we don't believe in workspace righteousness. I'd never say that. And yet our lives scream it. Do they not? How often are we looking to our success and what we're doing and saying, my loveliness to God is dependent upon how I act. It's dependent upon how I present myself, how I stack up. Or when we're overwhelmed and exhausted, what are we believing? So often it's easy to believe that the Father doesn't really delight in anything. He's calling us to these lives of just quiet, toilsome, just drudgery. That joy is not a part of the Christian experience. And so we're just called to suck it up and keep going. We're called to double down on what we can do. What we believe is that God doesn't delight in me. I don't have the Father's love resting upon me. Or that final instance of loneliness. What are we believing? It's so easy to believe in the midst of silence and loneliness that I have no loveliness. That there is nothing that I have to offer that I can look at other groups and say they're better off without me there. And what we believe so clearly about God is that he doesn't love the diversity he's woven into me. He actually broke that mold out of frustration, not because he hit on anything good. One of my mentors once told me that pain always trumps theology. Under the tidal wave of pain, all of the bumper stickers of our faith that we like to paste up of cute words and sayings gets ripped away and it exposes our hearts. It exposes where we are. And here's where I think Elijah is so helpful because he shows us very clearly what he's doing and how he is feeling and what he is believing. What does he do in this passage, right? He is running for his life, fleeing from where God has called him, fleeing. And what is he believing? He's believing that God won't show up again. He's believing that God's shot is shot with him, that he's useless now. God's unable to come and save him from this calamity. He's already shown up in a different way. And then what does he do? He lays down and says, Lord, it's okay. Take my life now. I'm ready. I'm done. What is he believing? believing he's useless in God's sight, believing that he's a failure, that he is not a prophet which anyone should look at because he has failed his God. And then what does he cry out? God, I'm no better than my father, revealing that he is trapped and drowning in shame, absolutely believing every lie that Satan wants to throw his way. And this is where I feel such closeness to the scriptures. This is why I love this story so much is because I can meet them in that deep place. I understand what it's like to feel broken. I understand what it's like to be just kind of buffeted by the onslaughts of Satan's attacks of shame. His, his use of the word enough, right? I think it's one of Satan's most powerful tools. You're not smart enough. You're not popular enough. You don't know enough people. You are not lovely enough. You are not enough for God's love. Where do our hearts sit under that word? Pain scratches off the veneers of our heart and asks us to look honestly in the mirror. And the painful truth I have to tell you this morning is all those situations and all those ways that I've described, both actions and thoughts and beliefs, are not from the hallways of the hypothetical, but actually a testimony of my heart. I've said each one of those things. I've believed each one of those things. And what it exposes, what pain exposes in me is how often I believe that I have to come to the Lord cleaned up. 
I can't come to him broken. I've got to scrub my life clean before I can crawl to his throne. And when I believe that, I'm totally missing the love of our Savior. I'm completely missing what's offered to me every Sunday at the communion table. And I'm believing the lies Satan wants me to believe. So let's look now and see how it is that pain turns and invites us into flourishing. Looking again at Elijah's life, at what happens and how the Lord moves in that towards him, right? When Elijah's feeling abandoned and alone, how does the Lord react? How does he move? He sends an angel, assuring him of his presence and of his love. How does he react when Elijah cries out, Lord, I'm ready to die. As he's drowning in shame, where does the Lord go? The Lord doesn't move to berate him. He doesn't move to say, you should know better. You are my prophet. Come on, suck it up. Let's go. I've got more jobs for you to do. No. The Lord gives him safe rest and feeds him for the journey that he knows that Elijah couldn't do on his own. And Elijah, as he's feeling so isolated and alone, how does the Lord move? Later on in this chapter, He moves in the still small voice and by bringing alongside the helper of Elisha. The Lord moves into every well of Elijah's pain with love, with gentleness and compassion. He moves towards him in the midst of his brokenness with healing, whether that is physically, relationally, spiritually, or emotionally. The Lord meets Elijah in the depth of his pain with love brothers and sisters, what's so beautiful about the faith that we proclaim is that same thing is true for each one of us. It's exactly how he wants to move towards us. So I only told you part of the quote that my mentor told me about pain. He told me, pain always trumps theology, and the only hope that we have to move through that is a relational knowing. It's a knowing that comes from the heart, and not just one that is head knowledge. One of my favorite passages in all of the scriptures is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I'm going to read those for us now. It says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Brothers and sisters, Christ knows. He knows that sharp pain of betrayal. He knows the searing loss of his friends abandoning him in his time of need. He knows what it's like to have misplaced expectations laid upon him. He knows what it's like to be completely overwhelmed. He knows and meets us there in it. That is the Savior who we get to come to. We get to crawl to brokenly. It's this incredible call to freedom to us. As Christ calls us, come to me. You don't have to pretend here. Let your tears flow like rivers to my feet and know that I hold each one of them in a bottle. Come to me shouting, screaming, raging with all of your frustrations and doubt because I am enough and I will catch you when you collapse. Come to me broken and crumpled and bask in the victory that I've won for all eternity. Come to me with your wounds and your scars because I'm the one who's been crushed for your iniquities. Come to me broken and know it's by my wounds you have been healed. Come to me just as you are. Christ invites us to come to him and he tells us what's so beautiful is when you forget, when you have amnesia and you forget it again and again, come to the table every Sunday and put my love upon your lips. 
Come and taste and see that I am good. Come and remember that I'm the one who makes all things new and there's nowhere you can go that's too far away from my love. You can never be too far gone. That is the beauty of being broken before our Savior. That is the invitation of pain. I think pain also invites us into community. Satan loves isolation, silence, and islands. He loves to say that you're alone and it's only you. No one else knows and understands. But we, the people of God, get to proclaim this reality that our family lineage, like our family history, is broken people. Just read the Bible. Like, everybody's a goober. Everybody's messing up again and again and again. And what we get to see is we can be broken together. We don't have to have it all together. We can look like a hot mess because we have Christ. And so what we need to do, what we're able to do, is trust one another. Now, granted, this is going to be a little different than this cheap authenticity we often throw around. It's going to be costly commitment to one another. It's going to mean trusting one another in brokenness and in love. But it's going to be the richness of true knowing and loving together. Pain invites us to be broken together. It invites us to come and remember our deepest identity. That the deepest thing about me is not what I can put on the wall, not any accolades I have won, but the fact that I am called a son of God, an heir of God, and a co-heir with Christ. And it also invites us to come together as his people and remember his faithfulness. What we just sang about, one of my favorite Old Testament practices is the practice of raising Ebenezer's where they would raise these huge stones and consecrate this moment in pure thankfulness, profound thankfulness to how the Lord has come and helped them now, then. And then every moment when they walked by, they can see out of their corner of their eye and remember, God has been faithful and he will continue to be faithful. Finally, we see that God and pain invites us into brokenness on the journey. The most impactful thing that I have been told in, in years, the most important thing I learned in seminary came from one of my dear mentors, Mark. And he looked at me square in the eyes and said, Clay, my deepest prayer for you is that you can just trust Jesus a little more every day. My deepest prayer for you is you can just trust Jesus a little more every day. There is such hope and freedom in that because it's not a call to know everything. It's not a call to look perfect all the time. It's a call to, in baby steps, crawl towards our Savior to remember that our growth isn't this linear slope, but winding and often like with scarred knees as we fall down again and again, and Christ invites us back to him in that. Pain is so clarifying because it instills humility, and it roots our hope in Christ's finished work alone and the Spirit's guidance in it. So brothers and sisters, this morning my hope is that we can have eyes to see what pain is revealing to us, where it is that we run, what we're believing about ourselves and what we're believing about God. And brothers and sisters, my deep hope is that we can lean into the invitation that pain offers to us to come and be broken before our Savior in all of our unloveliness and know he covers us and swallows us up in love. That we can embrace what it means to be a people who don't have it all together and trust one another. And that we can crawl on this journey of grace and growth as we grow more and more into the one whose name we bear. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for the ways in which you and you alone bring us grace. I'm so thankful that even though we have no right, you invite us to your throne to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. God, help us to trust more and more that you call us in brokenness to you, that you do not abandon us in our pain, 
but invite us into the healing love of Christ and Christ alone. We're so thankful for the ways you meet us. We pray us in Christ's name. Amen.